Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) It's the finale of Season 3, and today's guest sends us off with hope and solidarity. It's writer and performer Teddy Lamb. I first spotted Teddy roaming around Soho with pink hair, frills and a prominent sexy moustache. The combination felt audacious, and I've been longing to speak to them about gender and identity ever since. Teddy is femme, non-binary, trans, and was using them-they pronouns long before being non-binary was even part of their vocabulary. They described theirs as a gender rather than a sexuality story. But their pansexuality and description of the joy of tea for tea sex leaves us marvelling at how much there is to learn from the trans community when it comes to consent and empathy in sex. Teddy describes the physical response to being misgendered, of finding gender euphoria and why they are only sleeping with trans people for now. We look at the radical power of trans body hair and how much there is to learn from the young members of the LGBTQ community. Their show Since You've Been Gone a glorious autobiographical account of growing up queer in the 90s and defining yourself whilst dealing with loss was an Edinburgh hit. The show is now available exclusively for Pleasure Podcast listeners to watch using the password Pleasure Teddy on the link found in our notes. It's available to watch until the 24th of May. We do go to some darker places mentioning both assault and transphobia. But this is a hopeful interview where we learn how important solidarity rather than solely visibility can be. Amongst me and my friends, like most of us are non-binary, like within our world. And there's some of us who present more on the femme scale like me and some who present more on the butch or mask spectrum. But I think amongst, uh, not all trans people, but a lot of trans people feel that gender is a lot more fluid than either of the two binary options. So like my boyfriend is also non-binary, but presents a lot more masculinely and looks a lot more masculine and finds gender euphoria in far more masculine things than I do. But we are both within a scale of non-binaryism. Um, so I, yes. yeah, I describe myself as non-binary trans femme because I like to emphasise the femme side. That is what makes me feel more comfortable. You've talked about actually how you came relatively late to sort of understanding your yeah, gender totally. and, and identity. I was probably like 12 or 13 when I first came out to my parents and did the very cliche erasing thing of being like, oh, I think I'm bisexual and then like eased my way into it. Now I do a lot of work with young trans people and do a lot of workshops and facilitation and stuff. And there are kids who know so much more about gender than I do because they've got YouTube and they know where to look on the internet. 
people are coming out a lot younger, are understanding their gender a lot younger because they're exposed to so many different things and so many new worlds and new voices and new ideas. It wasn't until after university that I started even hearing the word non-binary or learning about non-binary people or learning about alternate pronouns. I was using they, them pronouns before I called myself non-binary and I referred to myself as non-binary before I called myself trans. They wow, were... so did you, did you have sort of the physical, emotional experience of being, of knowing yourself as non-binary way before this was even part of your vocabulary? Yes, totally. To- and it was... It was a case of knowing that something was different and a case of knowing that um, there's something about me that is not the same as everyone else and then trying to work out what that is by going through the more traditional ideas of that. Like when people are like, when you ask like any like gay man about coming out, the story is normally like, oh, I knew I was different from the other boys and I knew something was different with me and then I was in the locker room and I noticed someone else and that was a thing or something like that. So I was going through those motions of trying to work out, is this where I fit in? Is this where I fit in? Is this where I fit in? And it wasn't until I found they, them pronouns and people using they, them pronouns that I understood more about myself and more about my gender and that it wasn't, for me, it wasn't a sexuality journey. Um, It was completely gender like I I now define as pansexual I will date anyone regardless of their gender if I think they're hot like what's between their legs doesn't matter to me but it took a long time to work through that and learn that especially I grew up in a tiny village um in the middle of nowhere and then I went to a university in a very small town and wasn't exposed to much queer culture, really. Like, I didn't even start watching Drag Race until, like, season seven or something stupid. <laughs> then I I binged the lot and decided it was an, my new favourite programme. Then I read more about RuPaul and realised that it was a very problematic favourite. Mm-hmm. And then I continued watching it despite hating her and wishing I wasn't giving her the money but being addicted to it anyway. It was a very gradual thing. But even then, it, that changes and it it's so fluid. Like, within... Like the past year, I've started using she, her pronouns as well and finding more gender euphoria in that than I do in they, them. So I use both. Just for me, it's a journey and it's learning about yourself and discovering yourself. And there is no one fixed point. I love this phrase, gender euphoria. Yes. Well, there's gender euphoria and gender dysphoria. And so dysphoria is as it sounds, really bloody negative. And it's it's actually something that a lot of people are struggling with right now under COVID-19 because there's no access to places like hairdressers or to nail salons or like really basic things that lots of people take for granted. But for us, feels like therapy or almost life or death situations. There's a salon in London called Open Barbers, which is a trans-run and trans-led hair salon, which is, they're amazing. And they've been doing tutorials on their Instagram and they're doing, they're loaning out their hair clippers and like cycling around London to loan them out to people so they can do their own hair. It's been really nice seeing how the community is banding together to support each other in these weird little ways that you probably don't even think about you might need support with at some point. For those who might not be familiar with the backstory, um, what's the controversy surrounding RuPaul? So RuPaul um, believes that drag is only for cis males 
he believes that if you have any sort of gender confirmation surgery, that you are cheating. Um, he also doesn't believe in drag kings. So there are no cis female or trans... Well, there's been one trans female contestant on RuPaul um, openly when it was on and her name was Peppermint and RuPaul said that the only reason he allowed her on was because she wasn't cheating because she hadn't had any gender confirmation surgery yet mm. at that point. Wow, um, cheating. Cool, so, right? And also RuPaul just fracks in his back garden, which is weird. What? That's not, yeah, a, yeah, that's not a euphemism. That's actually fracking. Yeah, Ru- yeah. yeah RuPaul, is, RuPaul is fracking on his farm in like Utah or whatever, which is just problematic in its own right. In your show, it was so beautifully put when you say about how you felt when someone calls you a man. Mm. You said you, you feel like I'm wearing a beige and comfortable suit. Yes. And then when someone calls you they, them, it felt like old, worn, soft, strong, comfy denim. And I, I can't think of a, a nicer, more visceral, tactile metaphor. Is that still very much the case? It's a very physical uh, response yes, that you get completely. to your pronouns. It really is. It's something that I think only trans people can understand, really. It's a confirmation of who you are and how people see you. It varies as well on the intention and on the place. Like, there are moments when you're, like, paying for groceries or something and someone's like, thank you, sir, or whatever. I'm just going to ignore that. That's not going to, like, ruin my day forever. But if someone is more like specific and correct in how they're addressing me it feels amazing and I think that's something that everyone would love really everyone would like to feel more comfortable and feel more confident and be more validated in their own skin at the time of doing the show in 2018 you talk about how it had taken a long time for you to start wearing the beautiful dresses Mm -hmm. and skirts that made you feel so pretty and free um that you had in your in your cupboards I was wondering where you are now in in 2020 when it comes to to wearing those items? It still varies. I don't think that... The UK is not a welcoming place for trans people right now. It is a very negative place for trans people. There's a lot of danger for trans people, especially trans femmes, being visible and public in the street. So it is something that I still don't do as often as I would like to because I don't feel safe to do so. Um, but when I'm going out with my friends, when there's a group of us, when we are traveling somewhere together then I will wear a cute little skirt or a nice dress and wear a little bit of makeup or something like that or if I'm just around my house for the day then I have little dresses and nighties and skirts and stuff that I'll wear just to be comfy around the house but it's not something that I am able to do every day at the moment. The world just isn't a safe place and I'm not brave enough to be honest. There are people out there who are and who I admire and aspire to be but at the moment the places that I go to are safe. The theatres I go to, the bars that I go to are all safe places for me to wear a cute dress but the ways that I get there aren't. Like public transport is not a safe place for a trans person. All of the shit that I've got, it hasn't been in a bar or in a club. It's been waiting at a bus stop or on a bus or on the tube, which is why there are so many trans crowdfunders for taxi funds, for Uber funds. Like in Edinburgh, when I was up there with the show, there was a taxi fund for women, trans people and non-binary people to get taxis everywhere because... It's just safer. I'm sure you know how it feels to be a woman walking home at night and it's the same for trans people. We can get followed, we can get beaten up, we can get a lot of shits. 
I still wear cute outfits. I still wear very queer outfits. I still wear stuff that I like. So it's not like I'm hiding in any way, but my comfort level isn't there. And I still, I'm not entirely certain if that is entirely because of the threat of violence or whether that is part of my gender journey. Just that's just not where I'm at all the time. And that's fine. And I do wear shorts and jeans and that's a thing as well. Like there is no thing that everyone who's femme has to always wear a dress or a skirt. But sometimes I feel like I'm not quite trans enough because I'm not doing it all the time. It just feels very constricting, the suits we all have to wear or the Mm. armour we have to put on to get out of the house and get to where we need to be. These binary options just limit everyone completely. And if we just abolish gender completely and just let everyone be whoever the hell they want to be, then there's no stress about trying to fit into any box. Like, that's the thing that I think harmed me the most for so long, was trying to fit into a box and trying to be a certain type of queer person or trying to be a certain type of gay man or trying to be anything when... I can't do any of that. I can only be me and I can only be honest to who I am, to what I feel and to what I'm going through. Like, no one woman has the exact same experience of womanhood. No one man has the exact same experience of manhood. Is manhood a thing? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Yeah. It just sounds weird in my head, manhood. just sounds like cock. (laughs) (laughs) I found it um, quite right when you talk about how no one person obviously fits into a box. So however much we use these Mm. pronouns and labels, actually, we're all on a spectrum and completely individual, um, which is why I think I found it sort of brilliantly kind of radical when for a while you had um, facial hair whilst very outwardly femme as well. You had this fabulous moustache and the juxtaposition was extremely striking and unusual. There are two writers who speak a lot about trans body hair, Alok Vade Menon and Travis Alabanza. It was actually through going to a workshop with Alok and speaking to Travis and other people around body hair that I started to... I've always been a very hairy person and I am also a very lazy person. I think my Instagram bio is lazy femme because I am very femme, but I'm also super lazy. Like, I haven't worn makeup since... January and that was for a job that was for a show I was in and like I love doing my makeup I love getting all done up and doing it but it also takes like an hour and a half and I can't be bothered to do that most of the time and it's the same with body hair it was actually for the show called Red Palace that was on at the vault and I played Snow White it was a multi-rolled show so there were other people playing Snow White who were cis women but I really wanted to explore my gender a bit within that I wanted to completely shave all my body hair and shave my facial hair and get rid of it and just see what gender feeling that gave me whilst being able to wear these incredible flamboyant pink costumes. And I found that when shaving the moustache, that really helped me. For me, it made me feel more femme. I actually, I didn't mind the like smooth legs or chest or anything, but it was just such a bugger to maintain. The rate that my leg hair grew back at, I was astounded by because I'd never done it before. And I was like, God, really? So I mm. just get very lazy with it. And I'm I'm comfortable enough within myself at the moment that I know that I am still a non-binary trans girl with hairy legs and a hairy chest. Yes. And my boyfriend still thinks it's hot, so I don't care. <laughs> and that hair itself, does that cause you any dysphoria or euphoria? 
I now get quite dysphoric over my facial hair. I'm quite stubbly at the moment and I am not enjoying that at all. But I'm trying not to stress out about it too much. I'm not seeing anyone else. Um, and I am just shaving every day a couple of times a day. Um, but other than my facial hair at the moment, I don't get too much dysphoria from it, no. Mm. But that it's completely different for different people. Like, mm. I know trans friends who are always completely smooth and who, the inverse as well, who are like, well, I feel my most non-binary when I'm presenting femme, but have hairy legs and it's the juxtaposition. And it's, yeah, everyone's journey is unique. I was wondering whether you would tell us a little bit about your experience of dating uh, a trans woman. So I've dated a few trans women. Um, I now only date trans people, really. It's just so much easier to date trans people because cis people are lovely sometimes and can be very well-intentioned. But when you're dating another trans person, you just don't have to explain yourself. I just find it easier i find it safer and i find the sex much better yes <laughs> yes like there is nothing like t for t sex like it's just understanding just understanding what makes someone feel good understanding that knowing that you might not see what you expect underneath someone's clothes understanding the validation the touch and the consent is so it's so much easier like whenever I date trans people like one of the first questions anyone asks is like what do you want me to call your junk wow which is just a question that a cis person has never asked me and it's... I mean I don't think I would have an answer yeah but that's the thing like think about like that that is the start of pretty much any sexual interaction I have now is asking what how would you like me to refer to you and what would you like yes. me to call your bits Yes, of course. Um, and it just, it, it gets everything on the table. It gets all of the awkwardness out of the way. You can talk about what you're into, what your levels of consent are, any safe words you want to use, any yeah. triggers you have. And that's just a normal thing for most people in the queer community. Okay, I'm going to ask you a really stupid question. When do you it. say, what do you want me to call your junk? Are we talking about whether it's like, do you want me to call it a pussy or a cock? People have different words. So people have different things that they like to use. Some people like cock, some people like cunt, some people like dick, some people like pussy, some people like completely different things. So it's just yeah. getting that out of the way immediately. When you are that blunt and that upfront with people right at the beginning, it just opens up the dialogue so that they can be like, well, you can, I want you to call this my cunt, but I don't want you to touch this. I like you to lick this, but I don't like you to use your fingers on this. Like you can use your bits in here, but around here I prefer only oral and things like that. And just opening up that dialogue right from the very beginning with something as basic as names for things mm. just makes it, a lot easier, I find. This is a learning process, yes, right? Totally. And, and therefore, the first conversations you would have had with your partners would not have been what you want me to call your junk. No, no, and not so, when I was fifteen and losing my virginity. Definitely not. And so, how did this process sort of come about? From sleeping with other trans people and having them ask me the question, like I, when I was first asked that question, I was like, "Oh, I've never thought about that." And then. I was like, yeah, this makes sense. That's a good thing to ask. I would, I would have never asked you and then I probably would have offended you and then we probably wouldn't have carried on to have great sex. So let's keep this up so that I can keep having great sex with great people. Um, <laughs> and it's about just understanding 
other people and having a level of empathy and a level of communication that means that you can go there and you can just ask what might seem like a weird question to some just to make everyone feel more comfortable. It just seems very frustrating that we put so many structures and constrictions around how we talk about sex, how we're meant to behave, that men should be the ones pushing for sex and women should be the ones... There's so many roles that are sort of scripted that actually, when you do actually just try and move out of that, it just feels so much more comfortable. There's so much more space in yeah. there. Totally. We have all these roles for like what a man's supposed to do and what a woman's supposed to do. And because I'm neither of those things, I don't feel the pressure to conform to either. So therefore, it's freed me up to be more open to more things within sex. Like all of the cliches, like gay men are terrified of vaginas. It's like, well, I know a hell of a lot of gay men with vaginas and I know a hell of a lot of gay men who are not terrified by these men who are very into them and whatever they call their vagina. And it just means that I think the more open you are to anyone and anyone's body and anyone's names for their body and anyone's pronouns, the more you're likely to just get on with them and have a good time and be chill, really. There's no point in... I don't. I just really don't understand people who get stressed out by other people's identity mm. like if it has no impact on you like if you don't want to fuck a man with a vagina that man with a vagina probably doesn't want to fuck you either so it's fine so why does it matter i wonder if it's challenging what we've been so brought up to very toxic very mm. insidiously toxic poisonous messaging about what we should and shouldn't be yeah. we've spent so so many years trying to fit into those boxes that to suddenly see people free yeah <laughs> free of them yeah is extraordinarily challenging and, and anger making but probably because they're frightened of it yeah I, yeah i think it, it, it's got to come from some sort of fear or something We're speaking today on a bit of a shocking day about mm -hmm. the news mm -hmm. about um, what's just happened. Can you tell us a bit about that? Let me just get the actual quote. Conservative Equalities Minister Liz Truss set out her plan for reforms to the Gender Recognition Act yesterday. Truss, who dislikes identity politics and wants to rename the Government Equalities Office the Ministry of Freedom, made the comment in a virtual session of the Women and Equalities Select Committee on April 22nd. 
So um, Orwellian, isn't it? It really is. First of all, the protection of single-sex spaces is extremely important. Secondly, making sure that transgender adults are free to live their lives as they wish without fear of persecution while maintaining the proper checks and balances in the system. And finally... Um, which is not a direct issue concerning the Gender Recognition Act, but is relevant, is making sure that under-18s are protected from any decisions they could make that are irreversible in the future. Well, first things first, no children are allowed to make any decisions that are irreversible at all, ever. Like, that is just not a thing that is legal or would ever be legal. No child is undergoing any sort of gender confirmation surgery. The only thing that trans kids are ever given, which is even then is very rare and takes years to get put on, is hormone blockers, which could basically prevent some of the irreversible facts of um, puberty, but it doesn't reverse them completely. It, you're on these hormone blockers and you have to essentially stay on them. If you go off them, you will go through puberty as normal. So nothing is irreversible until a child grows up and is of legal age to make these decisions themselves. Like, no one is giving oestrogen to a 10-year-old. That's just not a thing that happens. The main focus is that if you are given these puberty blockers, it means you don't develop at the time um, those pu uh, pubertal changes that could lead to further dysphoria. And we recognise that because there is such a high risk of mental health issues in people who have experienced gender dysphoria on a longer term basis if you are protecting them from that they are more likely therefore to have less mental health problems in the future when they're allowed to get to an age where they have a more settled idea of their identity yes yeah totally i hadn't actually heard the ministry of freedom quote that she wants to rename the government equalities office the ministry of freedom it just it's, it is Orwellian and it sounds so ridiculous, but it's also so dangerous to have someone like this in power. It amalgamates with sort of the ideas of freedom of speech, doesn't yeah. it? And how that can be abused, I yeah. think, as and well. It's mm. just this government are dangerous on many, many, many levels, I would say. Um, but this is... Just as you said, with the rate of trans mental health and trans suicide, this is one of their more dangerous thought processes. I can see a lot of people dying because of these words, unfortunately. Yes. Like that, yes. you, I see that within my work, within my day-to-day -day life and within the people that I campaign with and campaign for. I see the effects that speeches like this and policies like this have on people. They have really negative effects on me. I'm a strong, vaguely confident, vaguely outspoken person. And still, I read news like this and cry for days and feel devalidated and dehumanised and like a less of a person. This is a slight tangent, but with my GP, I very recently actually went to them and was like, I would like you to refer me to the gender identity clinic. I'm doing that very late because as a non-binary person, there is no legal recognition for being non-binary. That yeah. is legally, it doesn't exist. So I've always thought, well, there's not much point in me going and speaking to my GP because legally they can't do anything. It's not like me speaking to the gender identity clinic means I can change my passport or my birth certificate or anything like that. That's just not, that's not a thing that's going to happen. But my boyfriend quite rightly was like well that's where it's at now we don't know where it's going to be at the future and the waiting list is two to three years wow. so 
you may as well get on the list. Just a meeting, the waiting list is two to three years at the moment. The NHS currently advise that it's, I think, six to 12 months is the official line. But unfortunately, it within the trans community, we know and have concrete evidence that it is two to three years. And what happens in this clinic generally? Um, so it can be various things. So that's where you go through for the NHS to get any sort of gender confirmation surgery, to get any sort of hormones, to get any sort of speech therapy, to get any sort of counselling, to get any support at all wow. as a trans person about your gender. But I was talking to my friend about this and... So I was explaining to him that I asked my GP to do that and she was really good and she was really great. And it was when I was first starting on antidepressants as well. So I was going back two weeks later for a meeting with her, basically just so that she could check up and make sure that things were fine. I wasn't having any adverse side effects. And she was like, oh, have you uh, have you been referred yet? Um, and I just burst out laughing because she had no idea that the waiting list was that long herself either. Goodness. Um, and... My friend was like, well, doesn't she know that we're trans? We're at the bottom of the pile. We are the lowest of the low when it comes to things like that, which is how we are made to feel. And it just, there is no excuse for that waiting list. It's done on purpose, I think. It feels like a government thing where they have cut support to such a minimal thing that trans people are just dying as they wait. People are committing suicide as they wait to get through because they cannot feel who they are they cannot get the support to be who they are and it also the amount of money that I have spent over the past year on friends crowdfunders for top surgery for hormones for anything like trans people are also the most likely to be unemployed to not have support from their parents to be isolated from their community and yet we are also the people who are needing private health care the most does it feel like there is an increase in allies that as trans visibility becomes potentially, hopefully, more prevalent, that the allies are joining? Within friendship groups, within small communities, within the arts where I work, allies are growing and allies are there. But within the world and within the media, and especially within the UK, the UK is very specific with its anti-trans rhetoric. Mm. It's not something that is a mainstream debate anywhere else, like even in the US, the level of transphobia is just insane in the UK. There was a survey recently, I can't remember where it was, so I can't quote it, but the trans mentions within the media are 97% negative. Yeah. And that's when that's all you're seeing and all you're hearing, that does radicalise people and that does radicalise communities. Like it just... Even The Guardian, which is supposedly like the bastion of liberal media, their official line is anti-trans. They have like a few think pieces for people giving their own individual opinion. And then they also had a, the line of The Guardian is that trans women shouldn't be in single sex spaces and blah, blah, blah. So there are no mainstream trans allies, basically, like especially within the media. So the only real sort of allies within the media are specifically queer publications. It's only like Diva or Attitude or Gay Times, which within themselves are only speaking to members of our community already. Yes. Um, so on a personal note, I see a lot of allies and I see a lot of people standing up for people when they get attacked in the street. And like I was assaulted last year. I was 
attacked waiting for a bus and I had a bottle of wine thrown at my head and was chased down the street and this was in the middle of Hackney and one woman like chased him away and came and checked I was okay and walked me to the next bus stop and sat with me while I waited and she was amazing and great and I was so grateful for that but also that was one person on a really fucking busy street and that one person made the world of difference but also there were like probably 300 people on that street at that time and anyone else could have stepped in and they didn't. When I was uh, sort of coming to terms with being gay, a lot of what yeah. I did was read because I'm a, yeah. geek, I'm a geek and yeah. I, I, that's yeah. what I do. And I was kind of looking for a argument to allow me to think or to, to feel that being gay was okay. And so yeah. I looked at, and I wanted a rational argument. I wanted a scientific argument. I wanted a, yeah. a, a religious argument. And there's a wonderful writer called Andrew Sullivan who wrote a book mm. about, and I can't remember, unfortunately, I can't remember his, the name of the book. Um, but basically, it takes you through there's these religious arguments, the um, a natural world argument, so yeah. uh, the biology of it, basically. And actually, so okay. uh, you know, if we're looking at anthropological structures for thousands of years, there have been yeah. sort of uh, trans or dual spirit or. A, yeah. a, a third gender or what you know, there's such a variety of how that that's experienced and present in so many different cultures across the world mm -hmm. and it's well represented that yeah it almost feels like it's there it's always been there it's never going away what is that's your issue it's, with it people act like trans and non-binary people are like this new trend and that it's a trendy thing to talk about now and that it's sort of come out of nowhere and that nobody has really thought about it before. And it's like, no, like trans people have existed for centuries, for millennia. There have always been people who didn't fit into a gender binary. Like male and female were only invented like how many thousands of years ago? Gender was a construct that was invented by humans. It's something that we decided we're going to separate people by their junk. I think part of it is because visibility is much higher now. And I do think that that is completely down to the internet. The way, the entire way the world has changed and the way that the world communicates has changed because we have access to so much more than we ever did before. And we can communicate with people like us around the world and we can put our voices and our work online so that anyone can access it. And I think that that is where this hatred must have that's the only way i can justify it as to why it's suddenly a big deal now is because i said our bubbles are small but other people's bubbles are bursting because they are finally understanding what lives beyond their garden fence in your show you describe a little bit how people parent each other you sort mm. of have a mother there's a mother figure and there's sort of a child figure and this might this is a fluid yes. <laughs> this may change around completely um, it's there's so much so i'm still very close with my natural family with my birth family but there's certain stuff that i could talk to them about but it's just easier to talk to people who like i was saying with relationships who i don't have to explain stuff to quite so much so like, I am very lucky. I have a very close queer family. We have a WhatsApp group that is very active constantly, much to uh, my, my boyfriend's hatred. He has it on mute. Um, but we support each other so much. I have two friends who I talk about in the show, Emma and Henry, who are two of my best friends. And we completely rotate. It depends on what we're going through and who needs what support and what we need. And we can be very caring and very loving. It can be very tough love and like, shut the fuck up and do this. You know, you need to do this. And 
queer friendships are so special and so magical and the way that we can support each other through the world and support each other like generation on generation as well there's i find especially like visibly and in the media there are so few queer and trans elders so i try to make friends with as many older trans people as i can and there's such a queer and trans like underground network of when someone gets referred to gender identity clinic ask for this doctor don't ask for that Uh doctor that doctor inappropriately touched this many people that whisper networks yeah this doctor is really nice and really supportive oh you need therapy you should go to this charity that runs specific queer counseling for free or for pay what you can or there's a lot of support for your immediate family but then for the wide queer family as a whole we all try to support as much as we can for somebody who might be just coming into their or realising their own identity, mm. but who feels very alone and doesn't necessarily have a community around them, I suppose like a younger you, really, yes. when you were in your village, you know, how do you think they might start finding people? I think it, it, it's like I said about the internet, it's all about going online and finding the charities or the support groups or the other young people. So my first recommendation that I always give to any young trans person who's trying to look for a community is speak to Gendered Intelligence. So Gendered Intelligence are an incredible charity. They offer workshops for young trans people. They have a trans acting masterclass. They go into schools and like teach trans inclusion. They do summer camps for trans youth and then trans teenagers. And they do amazing, amazing work. And it's finding charities like them that then currently they've moved all of their youth groups and stuff online so you can still find that community now and you can still be going through and talking to them but then there's lots of local smaller organizations that are doing the same finding things that you're interested in and people who are like you is so important and I think if I had had trans friends when I was younger I would have come out so much earlier and been so much more confident in who I was so much earlier and I'm very grateful I got to where I am now but it could have happened a lot quicker. And I suppose there will be some people out there who are you know now in their mid-30s maybe 40s Mm. onwards who are only just starting to understand their own identity. Totally I have friends in their 40s and 50s and 60s who have only recently come out or are only recently undergoing hormone treatment or all these different things Mm. that now that our eyes have been opened people are understanding more about themselves and questioning themselves more which I think is a really exciting time to be alive in but I think as I said with visibility comes danger as well and Trans Day of Visibility was on March 31st and one of the points that I saw a lot of people raising was we need more than visibility we need solidarity. If you have been affected by any of the issues discussed, please see our show notes for relevant resources. Find out more about Teddy at teddylam.com. See you soon for a sparkling season four. And in the meantime, stay safe. It has truly been our pleasure. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course... Pleasure. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.